Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we'll take a look at some of the artists who have had material disappear due to their record label's interference. Plus, Greg and I will conduct a classic album dissection of the Beatles' finest recording. Not Sgt. Pepper's, but Revolver. You're listening to Sound Opinions. That is Nellie Mackay with a song called Columbia is Bleeding. And no, I don't think she's talking about her record company in that song, Jim, although uh, she should have. She <laughs> um, that is from a record called Pretty Little Head, which Columbia Records was scheduled to put out in early 2006, but never did. Basically told Nellie Mackay, you need to release a 16-song, 48-minute version of this record. Nellie McKay said, no, 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 I want to put out this 23-song, 65-minute opus that I have in my head. Well, brilliant art cannot be contained, No, no, it cannot. And um, she basically went to battle with her record label uh, in public, blogging about this controversy, speaking up at a show in Los Angeles where she said, if this is the music business, I want out. Well, the best thing is when she gave the president of the label's home email address (laughs) out to her fans and said, tell this guy what you think of him. I love that. If any artist wanted to get kicked off her label, it was Nellie McKay, and she finally got her wish. Uh, She said, I don't want to put this record out in in this condition. I want off this label. Challenging Columbia slash Sony to put out the full-length version of the record. You've heard the whole album, and I haven't. Is any of it better than that? Because I don't know if I would have... Felt sorry for Sony Columbia. Generously put, she's a quirky artist. You know, there's a cross here between hip hop and Broadway and cabaret. There's a little bit of shtick here, of theatricality. Uh, she's also a very sarcastic and witty songwriter. I mean, there's some really sharp uh, turns of phrase so on So you could record. argue that the record company thought that such quirkiness was better served in a short dose and, rather than a long and, dose. And uh, they may well be right. I don't think they saw this artist in this day and age, unless you're selling mi- a million copies of a record, the major labels really aren't interested in you. And they let her walk with the record. After some legal wrangling, uh, there's a happy ending to the story for Nellie McKay. She was able to put out the record exactly the way she wanted on an independent label uh, nine months later. Spin Art ended up putting out the record. Well, this is only the most recent example of countless stories throughout rock history. Nellie McKay got us thinking, what are some of the most famous examples where the record company did not think the record was suitable for public consumption and or would make them any money, and so the record didn't get heard by the fans, never got released. We're calling this portion of the show, the label made me do it, but it could also be called the man... Stuck it to me, right? <laughs> and the man can stick it to you, Jim, because in the case of Nellie McKay, once she records those songs, even though it's her work, her art, her songwriting, 
Columbia Records owns the master tapes to that record. They can do whatever they want with those master tapes. Right. They own it. It's their property. They don't have to give it back to Nellie McKay and say, go ahead and do what you will. No, no. You know, the legalities are there. This is, has been the fact ever since Robert Johnson went to the crossroad and Satan came out and made him <laughs> sign that paper, you know, your soul, and I'll let you record your songs. Basically, it still operates exactly the same way a century later, and that's why these artists get into trouble. So we're going to look at some of uh, what we think are the most noteworthy uh, unreleased albums because the label refused to release them of all time. Now we have we've, uh, cleared the southern tip of South America and we're coming in along into Australia and over the New Zealand area. I've, I've, I've never seen All right, my first example is uh, an album by the immortal Butthole Surfers. That's Gibby Haynes, leader of the band, pretending to be an astronaut, floating over uh, Earth and giving uh, commentary about what he's seeing. This is a classic example. You know, there was a 15-minute window, circa 1991, after uh, Nirvana sold 8.5 million copies in a couple of weeks of Nevermind, when all the major labels decided anything that even is, is even remotely alternative rock, we are going to snatch up. And somehow the Butthole Surfers wound up signed to uh, Capitol Records. You know, the, the label that, that brought us, you know, Frank Sinatra and, and the Beatles, for God's sake. Right. Then alternative kind of waned. Post-Nirvana, uh, post-Lollapalooza, uh, this music wasn't selling anymore. The Butthole Surfers just kept making Butthole Surfers records, and they made a pretty good one. It was the first one that they really did digitally on computers. It was to be called After the Astronaut. And Capitol Records heard this and said, it's too weird. We don't want to put this out. This is 1998. Why did you ever sign the Butthole Surfers if you didn't expect to get weird albums from them? That's they what actually, they do. They got a hit out of the Butthole Surfers. Uh, they, well, at, at see, that's point. the thing. They had had a hit with Pepper. I They wanted more of that, and instead the Buttholes just kept making Butthole albums, and uh, and then Capital <laughs> freaked out. Uh, so the Buttholes sued Capital and said, wait a minute, you can't say that you're not going to release this. If you do say that, we demand an early release from our contract. Capital was happy to let them go. But that record, as it was originally recorded after the astronaut, Capital retained the rights, and it never came out. Mm-hmm. The Buttholes had their revenge by re-recording most of it. In fact, uh, that song we heard last astronaut is from the new version of the album called The Weird Revolution, which eventually came out on Hollywood Records, which was owned by Disney. Apparently they didn't get the memo that the buttholes were too (laughs) weird for public consumption. There's a magazine called Sunset And a tape machine that won't let Me ever forget this impossible longing for you 
There was a classic example of this with uh, Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. You wrote about a book about this, didn't much, you? Uh, much celebrated in the press, yes, and I, I, I am complicit <laughs> in that. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was scheduled to come out in 2001 in Reprise Records. It didn't actually come out until 2002 on Nonesuch Records, another subsidiary of Warner Brothers. The reason it did not come out is uh, because of songs like the one we're hearing, magazine called Sunset, one of the songs originally scheduled to be on that record. Reprise Records was looking for songs like this, more pop-oriented type of singles. But Jeff Tweedy, the the songwriter uh, and visionary of the band, you know, was looking at more of a conceptual work, where the songs really fit together. Certain more pop-oriented songs, like Magazine Called Sunset, were sort of filtered out of the record, and he wanted to look at this as sort of a bigger picture album that worked with a beginning, middle, and end, all the songs working together. Well, that's the way an artist would say it. The way the record company would say it is, but we don't hear a hit. We don't hear a hit, and that's exactly what Reprise told him. We don't hear any singles on this record. Jeff, could you try again? Uh, <laughs> Tweedy basically said, no, I, I don't want to try again. Mm. This, this is the record. I, I'm, I'm done with this record now. Uh, they came to Loggerheads, and basically uh, Reprise said, well, we'll put this out, but we're not really that enthusiastic about it. And, and Wilco uh, heard them loud and clear, basically saying this, is, this record is going to die if Reprise puts it out. They mm-hmm. had a much more faith in the record than the record company did. Reprise let him go. And we'd mentioned earlier that uh, artists normally have to pay to get their master tapes back. But uh, Reprise, in this case, was, was somewhat embarrassed by this because Wilco by then had developed a pretty strong reputation uh, nationwide and worldwide, really, as, as a significant band. So Reprise gave them back the tapes to Yankee For Hotel free. Foxtrot. What a coup for the band. They were able to shop the record themselves and put it out. And it worked out tremendously for Wilco because when they did finally put out Yankee Hotel Foxtrot the next year without magazine called Sunset on it, exactly the way they had originally envisioned the record, uh, it ended up becoming the biggest selling record of their career. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a song called I Fall Up by Brian Eno from an album that was called My Squelchy Life, an interesting 1991 disc that never came out. This story is partly Big Bad Record Company and partly uh, petulant or peevish artist. Eno had uh, returned to singing after being away from it for 15 or 20 years with a great record that he made with John Cale called Wrong Way Up. And then this was going to be his first solo album with vocals proper, and he recorded it in a a kind of uh, scattershot method as he crossed America playing uh, in different studios in different places different times with different people weirdly uh, divergent rhythm section you know Michael Jackson's rhythm section paired with Ben Montench and some of the Neville brothers wow. uh, Ben Mont from uh, Tom Petty's band weird combinations of people so it was an interesting record he wanted to put it out in September of 91 and the record company said uh, well you know it's an interesting record uh, it's a little weird we don't think it's going to get uh, much attention in September you should put it out in February of 92 and he said no it's now or never 
<laughs> I'll put it out today, but by February, I'll have moved on. It'll be different stuff. I'll put out a different record in February. Right. Uh, and they said, well, this is when we have time for it, buddy. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the end of my squelchy life. My theory about this next one you're going to talk about is that the artist uh, did, did have some role in this. Absolutely. Fiona Apple, we're talking about an album that uh, was made twice before it actually came out, called Extraordinary Machine. Fiona is a famously eccentric artist. She is not a woman who uh, takes herself lightly or anything else lightly, for that matter. A little high-strung. <laughs> a little high-strung, to say the least. And uh, went into the studio with her longtime collaborator, John Bryan, in California to make the third record of her career. She had sold three million copies of her previous two albums combined. The record company was sort of monitoring the progress of the album and not really liking what they heard. Complex songs, complex arrangements. John Bryan, the man who collaborated with Kanye West, is a man who knows his way around a studio. Uh, He can play many instruments. He's uh, conducted uh, symphony orchestras, arranged string parts for a number of major label records. This record was as much about John Bryan as it was Fiona Apple. I think Fiona herself even thought that. Realizing the record wasn't really done yet to her satisfaction, she wanted to keep working on it. And what she thought she heard from the major label was, well, if you want to spend any more money on this record, we're going to have to approve a track at a time and allow you to record a track at a time before we will allow you to continue recording this record. You say that's what she thought she she heard. She thought she heard that. (laughs) So essentially what Fiona Apple did was quit the music business. She she basically walked away for about a year, Mm -hmm. stopped recording altogether, and had no intention of ever recording again with Extraordinary Machine in the can, essentially unfinished. Uh, Fiona Apple and John Bryan did not want this record out there. Nonetheless, I have to say, uh, the stuff that did surface, I thought was terrific stuff, and her fans loved it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, They thought, why is this record sitting in limbo? Why can't we hear this music? Why won't Epic uh, Records officially release this music? Well, this uh, didn't move Epic Records much, but it did motivate Fiona Apple to start working on the record again. This time she went back in the studio with uh, a couple of producers named Mike Elizondo and Brian Cahew, and uh, re-recorded Extraordinary Machine. One of the most amazing examples of the difference between the two records is the song Red, 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 which you heard earlier in the uh, giant Brian incarnation, the very uh, dramatic string arrangements. Now you hear a more muted, more stripped-down version from uh, the Mike Elizondo, Brian Cahew version that officially surfaced last fall on Epic Records. Understand about complementary colors and what they say. Side by side, they both get right. Together, they both get gray. But he's been pretty much yellow, and I've been kind of blue. But all I can see is red, red.
a case of a record taking six years to finally surface, and now there's two competing versions of it out there. Well, we could go on playing this game forever, Greg. It's it's endlessly fun. Uh, some Just a few of countless other many examples of uh, record companies apparently pulling the plug on artists. Sheryl Crow had a record early in her career that never came out. John Fogarty's had a number of them. Cheap Trick, I think, once was subject to it. The Bee Gees in their career when they were changing around. Neil Young has, like, Five or six oh my God. records that have never... I mean, Geffen sued him for making unrepresentative albums in the 80s, whatever that means, and yeah. uh, didn't release a bunch of his stuff. But uh, I think we wrap up this story of The Man Killed Our Music with probably the best album ever that a boneheaded record company didn't want to put out. This is a song from it called Foggy Notion. She's over by the corner Got her hands by her side Now sort of universally recognized as one of the most influential bands in rock history, the Velvet Underground, Sad But True was sent packing from MGM Records. <laughs> they had recorded three albums, and this music was sold supposed to be... Sold about seven copies. Sold about seven copies. But everyone who, who bought one, in Brian Eno's famous <laughs> quote, everybody who bought a Velvet Underground album went out and started a band. They had made three albums. They had recorded a fourth. It was scheduled to come out on MGM Records. MGM decided, no thanks not good enough. We're not going to put this out. And uh, the band went over to Atlantic Records, made one final album, Loaded, the one that included Sweet Jane, and then they broke up. Many of the songs that they recorded for this uh, great Lost Velvets album in 1968 and 69 eventually surfaced years later on Polygram, still part of the MGM family. The right. corporation retains the rights to these things. Yes, uh, they did. As two different compilations called VU and Another View. But there could have been five Velvet Underground albums instead of four. They did uh, eventually recognize 20 years later, hey, these guys are kind of important. They kind of yeah. influenced uh, all kinds of music, and maybe we'll put this out now and maybe make some money off it, which they in fact did. I mean, the Velvet Underground catalog continues to sell, so they stuck it to the man, so to speak. There's a lesson here for Nellie Mackay and Fiona Apple and all the other troubled artistes of the world. If you stick around long enough and persevere and believe in your vision, you may eventually be able to stick it back to the man. (laughs) Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I take an in-depth look at one of the best rock albums of all time, The Beatles' Revolver.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That remains one of the most impressive feats of recording technology ever. I mean, four tracks, and what you've got going on is this these organ drones and backwards guitar, these mysterious, strange uh, bird calls, Lennon singing as if through a megaphone, uh, uh, kind of this feeling of a thousand Tibetan monks chanting on a mountaintop. Not to mention the drum sound by Ringo Starr. I mean, ah. incredible. Uh, drums have never sounded like that. You can... You can, you know, gauge the sound of drums on a rock record as in before Revolver and after Revolver, and specifically that song, Tomorrow Never Knows. In 1964, John Lennon and George Harrison first took LSD after they were unknowingly dosed by their dentist during a dinner party (laughs) at his flat. And uh, they had a bad trip. They made the mistake of driving around London at top speed in Harrison's Aston Martin, and it freaked them out, and they said never again. Why Lennon kept taking this drug, and and mind you kids, we don't endorse drug use here on Sound Opinions, but we (laughs) document it. Lennon took acid again, and this time he had a profound experience. In December 1965, he takes this drug and he travels toward what Aldous Huxley, one of the greatest uh, writers about the acid experience ever wrote, the white light. He traveled toward the white light. He met God. And uh, he began the very next morning in that kind of crystalline clarity that follows a profound psychedelic experience, writing a song that he originally called The Void. It would become Tomorrow Never Knows after Ringo's, one of Ringo's pet phrases. Right. You know, Ringo had these phrases that he'd always walk around saying, well, Tomorrow Never Knows, guys. He, he was like the Yogi Berra of the Beatles. He really know? was. Brilliant <laughs> guy. Malapropisms and uh, So, so back, in, back in the 60s, I'm told, I've never tried this. Back in the 60s, if you wanted to have one of these spiritual uh, acid experiences, you would sit with a book called <laughs> The Psychedelic Experience that Timothy Leary wrote, uh, the great acid guru, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, uh, paraphrasing the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was an ancient text that helped you, as you were on your deathbed, travel toward heaven, gave you this this spiritual roadmap toward heaven. Yeah, between and, worlds. I mean, yeah. before you were reincarnated, here's, here's what to do. And Lennon wrote these lyrics based on all of this experience. And it was the first song that the Beatles began recording for Revolver. Although it's the last song on their brilliant 1966 album, it is the song that started the recording sessions. Yeah, it's an amazing time for the Beatles. And and really, look look at the Beatles in, in, in 65, 66, uh, circa that era. In, in a sense, they were burning out a little bit. Uh, you know, they were still the cute, lovable, mop-top singing love songs. And meanwhile, along comes Bob Dylan, writing about his interior world and putting that out as a pop song. And the Beach Boys beginning the, to do this incredibly uh, ornate, orchestrated well, pop with, with pet sounds. Right. What you could do with a pop song was changing. I mean, in 65, you had the Stones 
going from an uh, an R and B and blues band essentially to doing a song like Satisfaction, mm-hmm. the Who doing a song like My Generation, speaking about broader issues than just love and you know I I broke up with my girlfriend. The Beatles realized that they too had to sort of you know pick up their game I think in order to keep up. And I think we saw the first inklings with that with Rubber Soul, but that was more of a lyrical revolution for the Beatles. The words became. Uh, paramount in uh, Rubber Soul. I think with Revolver, here we have the sound revolution, the moment where rock music really changed as a sound experience, the use of the recording studio as a device, as, as another instrument in the uh, mix yeah, of the absolutely. Record. As an instrument, as a canvas. Tomorrow Never Knows certainly illustrates that, and they began this project on four tracks, which is still incredibly, for people who aren't familiar with the studio, you know, now you literally have Hundreds, an infinite number of tracks, thanks to digital technology. Back then, it was still this big two-inch reel-to-reel tape, and uh, they're recording at Abbey Road, where these guys in white coats are walking around. They're they're the hired engineers. We're going to hear from one of them in a little bit as part of this discussion, Mr. Jeff Emmerich, who was their engineer. George Martin was, of course, the producer. So you have a technical revolution. You have a revolution in thought. Revolution was the name of the record. You know, I mean, Revolver is meant to signify the spinning round black disc of an old LP, as well as a revolution in thought. Jim, as you mentioned, we talked to Jeff Emmerich, who was the uh, chief engineer on the recording sessions for the Revolver record. Basically, his role was the, uh, the technical guy. He was the guy who was translating what the Beatles wanted in their heads into sound, the liaison between George Martin, the producer, and the Beatles, the band. We talked to Jeff a little bit about how we recorded Tomorrow Never Knows and about the uh, technical innovations in general about this album. Basically, it was, if I'm going to play a guitar, I don't want it to sound like a guitar. If I play the piano, I don't want it to sound like a piano. And so I'm thinking, what what the hell do I do, you know? (laughs) But, uh, of course... You know, I'm sort of tearing my hair out, and, and when we get into that first cut, you know, on Tomorrow Never Knows, which was was originally Mark One, you know, with the revolving speaker for the vocal. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was just grabbing at straws, really, and and luckily that that revolving speaker sort of uh, helped me, and 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 won John over to to my calls anyway. When you say a rotating speaker, it's the giant Leslie cabinet that that most uh, people use for for Hammond organ. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I thought, well, if we can break into the circuitry, then then perhaps we can feed feed the vocal mic through through into that speaker. So, and that's exactly what we did, mm. uh, <laughs> which was violating every rule of uh, Abbey Road, which is kind of an official kind of place. People wandering around in lab coats, and you had to yeah. wear a, a tie and cufflinks to the, to work every day, and 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 here you are breaking into the circuitry of a <laughs> of a Hammond organ to record a vocal, which just wasn't done, right, uh, Jeff? No, no, no. Of course, it wasn't done, and 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 I also had you know certain sounds in my head because I, I'd been listening to a lot of American records while I was, was mastering records and, and I wanted to try and improve or get get more more sort of adventurous sounds out of the studio than, than we were basically getting and the other thing I was going in for was this closer sound on Ringo's drum kit and mm. then I had to move the, the bass drum mic closer to get that and take the front skin off and got into trouble uh, you know for moving the bass drum mic closer than, than two feet and eventually ended up with a written letter to giving me permission to be able to do that. Tell us about these backward tape loops which were obviously a big part of Tomorrow Never Knows and the whole album. How did you guys happen upon using those? You know we all had uh, our own little home tape recorders, and Paul, in particular, used to go go home and, and experiment, making these little little crazy tape loops on on his uh, m- machine. But the, the backwards thing started where John actually had a re- on his reel to reel because you know we we didn't have cassettes in those days, and and the only way you could take a track home to listen to it was a playback lacquer. Um, 
uh, which meant waiting for uh, to the next day to to get it. So John had his reel to reel tape machine and being completely non technical, took the tape home of a, of a rough mix, um, and laced it up backwards on the machine and came back the next day and said there was something wrong with the mix not realizing that he'd been playing it backwards <laughs> so so after that we, you know we, we you know that, that's how the, the backwards thing started you know we used to listen to everything backwards that we, we, we recorded you know mm. and, and even as, as just as a, as a well not really a joke because we were all a bit zany then we, we we thought that the russian language was was actually english backwards and we got some russian uh spoken word and, and played it backwards to see if it was actually english when it was played backwards because it wasn't <laughs> Oh, man. That's a song called Rain, which is not on Revolver, but it's relevant to this discussion, Greg. The Beatles are also fooling around with tapes on that song. They're slowing down playback of Ringo's drums, makes everything sound heavier. The B-side of that single was a song called Paperback Writer, which is kind of an anti-authority song, uh, kind of a I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I should be free to do whatever I want song. Both of them with this brave new sound. Yeah, absolutely. It's intriguing that at this time, the Beatles were not only expected to put out these albums, but also to put out these singles. And the fact that two classic tracks like this, Rain and Paperback Writer, were left off one of the best albums of all time. Can you imagine what this record would have been like if the single, recorded at the same time as that album, uh, had been put on the record? Unbelievable. (laughs) Well, thankfully, we have CD burners. I mean, what everybody should do is burn themselves a new copy of of Revolver with these two songs, because they are very much of a piece. You know, Ringo's drumming reached another level. Oh, anybody who says that he couldn't play has to listen to Rain. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that he's doing is just incredibly melodic and sympathetic and very complicated. A a lot of people say that the stuff, uh, you know, just his drumming on Rain alone, there's the dawn of heavy metal. I mean, that heaviness Hmm. is the, you know, that heavy drum sound really was born with Ringo Starr playing on Rain. Slowed down tapes. Uh, And I'm not not prone to argue with that. I also think McCartney's bass playing took up another level on this record. Uh, Whereas before, he'd sort of been in in the pocket with Ringo, uh, the more melodic lead bass lines that McCartney really became famous for really originated on this record. Uh, they really fattened up the bass sound. He was modeling it after uh, James Jamerson, the great Motown bassist, where you had lead bass on a lot of those classic Motown singles. McCartney wanted some of that groove and some of that power in, in the Beatles recordings, too, and they really you can really hear it on both uh, Paperback Writer and Rain. We wanted to get a musician's take on this and on the experimentation and on you know what bursts out of the speakers when you listen to Revolver. So we talked to Matthew Sweet, who, you know, one of the greatest power pop artists of the last uh, 20 years who uh, has cribbed a lot from Revolver <laughs> on his classic album Girlfriend and and pretty much on, on everything he's ever recorded. Here is Matthew Sweet talking about uh, the loose feeling on Revolver that he loves so much. What made records great then was not like some sort of expertise. It was more the approach and just the time that it was. Anything could happen and nobody spent forever beating stuff into the ground. You know, It was just like the spirit of of you know something new and when they would have a good melody and something interesting they just go for it and there was a seat of your pants kind of feeling about it and it's really amazing to listen to the records from a viewpoint of how things are played and recorded now 
as opposed to how they were then, because things are so loose and mistake-ridden <laughs> that we're like amateurish compared to now. And it gave it this wonderful feeling, you know, and that's kind of kind of sad. You, could, you almost, I have to think that'll come back or something, you know. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed on to the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine Yellow submarine Ah, Ringo, a great drummer and, well... <laughs> he, he tried to sing. Uh, you know, you would think, Greg, that a song like Yellow Submarine is, is just this whimsical children's ditty. But nowhere on Revolver do we get too far away from this quest to alter your consciousness chemically. Albert Goldman, Lennon's controversial biographer, contended that, that uh, John actually wrote this song about yellow sub-shaped nembutals. <laughs> about drugs. But even if you don't buy that the lyrics are about drugs, Greg, certainly uh, sonically, it's a trippy song. No doubt. And uh, Jeff Emmerich had some great stories about how they recorded this song. I didn't get the impression from here, there, and everywhere your book, Jeff, that there was a stranger moment than Lennon deciding that he had to sound as if he was singing underwater for Yellow Submarine. And in fact, he wanted you to record him singing underwater. <laughs> well, well, exactly. I mean, that, that was, you know, what, what, I mean, I'm running around the studio floor sort of tearing my hair out. You know, there's all, there's all the other people there, you know. So, so in, in the end, I thought, well, you, John, you can't do that. I mean, he'd been blowing and singing, singing into walls and bubbles and God knows what else. <laughs> So I thought, well, the next best thing, let's just, just out of desperation, was to try and and put a microphone in in, in a in a bottle of water and uh, <laughs> just sing, sit, just sing to the to, to the, the glass glass milk bottle. But we had to protect the uh, slim condenser microphone, which had you know like 240 volts running through it. Uh, yeah, electricity. I don't know much about recording engineering, but electricity no, right. and water don't mix, right? Yeah, right. Exa- exactly. Yeah. So, so I was thinking, well, what, what can we put it in? And Mal Evans, you know, produced the the, uh, the condom out of his wallet, and I uh, put put the mic in that, and then sunk that in the milk bottle. So, and, that, and that's what what we did. Well, I can't. I don't think I ended up using it. It was just a dull, yeah, sort of sort of sound. But I mean, John, John, I'm I mean, telling you, Jeff, if you if you had that used condom today uh, on yeah. eBay, man, you'd be set for the next year. I'm telling oh, sure. you, sure. Yeah, right. He couldn't understand why you couldn't directly inject his vocal like you could a bass guitar or a, gu- a guitar like, later on, mm. uh, in, you know, during our, our pr- recording. And until George Martin explained that he'd have to have, have an operation and have a jack jack socket implanted in his neck, but that was only <laughs> said as a joke. You know, he, he was so ignorant of, of stuff like that. You know? She said, I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. In a minute, we're going to continue our classic album dissection of one of the greatest rock albums of all time, The Beatles' Revolver. Plus, later on in the show, I'll pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. 
Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg and I are in the midst of our album dissection of the Beatles' Revolver. We've been talking to one of the studio engineers, Jeff Emmerich, who worked at Abbey Road with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, pushing the envelope on what could be done on four tracks in the recording studio back in the day. One of the things, too, that I think uh, you, you sort of pioneered with this record, Revolver, uh, Jeff, was just simply where you placed the microphones inside Ringo's bass drum and close micing yeah. the, the string section on, uh, yeah. on Eleanor Rigby. Did you have any idea yeah. how these experiments were going to turn out before you attempted them? The, the, well, the Eleanor Rigby thing, string sound was, was a sound that you know I discussed with Paul and we wanted this close sound. And, of course, when I went in very close onto the string players with those microphones, which was, of course, it was a, a double string quartet, so there was eight, eight players there. Uh, they'd, they'd never been mic'd as close as that. And, of course, the, some of the guys, as we would say in the back desk, who weren't as good as the gooder players as the guys in the front desks you know used to sort of slide their chairs away from the mics but that you know i i obviously could hear what was going on i had to keep going downstairs and and just getting them to move back in or move the <laughs> mic closer and, to, and and in the end george martin had to tell them to stop doing it and because we were after a particular sound up the rice in the church where a wedding has been it's in a dream this was not done on rock records you had a, a, a no. basically a voice backed up by eight an eight piece string section that was unusual for a, a rock recording in those days and that's it, right 
Uh, McCartney uh, was obviously looking for something different. I think there was a conversation with George Martin may have suggested strings, and, and I believe Paul was thinking, oh, Mantovani, no. You know, the, the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the lush sort of string sound, and, and I, I guess we, you know, the, the, the close miking thing you know, came, came from, from those conversations. Right now, that song is just—it's part of the air. I mean, we are so used to hearing that song, and it's wonderful, and it's timeless, and it's been recorded by, by numerous artists. But imagine this coming out in 1966 on the same album with "Tomorrow Never Knows," uh, a voice and eight string players as a rock record. I mean, <laughs> right there, you have like what? Huh? It's revolutionary sonically, and you know McCartney's lyric. I mean, there's an incredible amount of empathy for these sad, lonely people who have been cut out of society. A lot of McCartney's songs, I think, are about sort of these everyday people. Whereas Lennon was clearly exploring his inner world and saying, "Okay, you lonely everyday people, here is the way out of your mundane existence." Where McCartney was describing the mundane existence, Lennon was saying, "Okay, here's the here's the path to transcendence. Follow me." What is George Harrison doing? He had been sort of the junior member of the Beatles songwriting team for uh, a decade, really, since he met them, uh, you know, in, in Liverpool in, in the 50s. But Revolver, he gets three songs on the album. Which is unprecedented in the Beatles catalog. Three Harrison songs on Revolver. Uh, some of his very best work. Taxman, Love You Too, I Want to Tell You. You know, George always has this rep as the uh, saintly, most hippie, most mystical member of the Beatles. Let's remember that here's George, and here's the Beatles for the first time on record, openly criticizing the government you know and what is george griping about that they're taking money out of his pocket (laughs) and the government's response is don't ask me what i want it for george doesn't want to pay taxes so george has some earthly concerns in addition to the mystical well absolutely these were just regular guys as uh jeff emmerich sort of reminded us you know he's in the studio every day with these guys and one of the great things about emmerich's book uh here there and everywhere is how he demythologizes uh the beatles and emmerich talked to us a little bit about that when you see this whole thing of beatles Right. You know, the mountaintop, the paradigm. I mean, how do you feel about it? For you, there were a couple of guys, you know, Lennon could be snarky to you and kind of nasty. Paul was kind of sucking up and politic. The other two guys are quiet. I mean, they were just guys that you worked with. Well, right. Exactly. I mean, this is a story of just human beings making making music in the studio with all its problems. And, you know, George Harrison didn't come down from the sky playing magical guitar solos. And, (laughs) and, and, and. young kids now who feel I, I can't possibly you know learn the guitar because you have to you know it, you, you just play the guitar you have to learn and George learned you know and it's the story of George learning you know which I, th- yeah. I think is great if you drive a car contacts the street if you try to sit contacts your seat if you get too cold contacts the heat if you take a walk contacts your i 
Now, interesting little factoid. Uh, Harrison played most of the guitar solos, most of the main guitar parts on the Beatles songs, but that was, in fact, uh, a Harrison song where the main guitar part, the solo, that biting, famous guitar solo, was not played by George Harrison, but by Paul McCartney. Her- you know, amplifying Emmerich's point about uh, Harrison... Uh, being the junior member and sort of growing into his role in the Beatles, he struggled for about nine hours trying to play a guitar solo that would satisfy him and, and the rest of the Beatles. And McCartney goes, let me have a crack at that. W- one take, there's the solo. Harrison's yeah. kind of drooping in the corner. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that was pretty it, good, Paul. Uh, nevertheless, this album recorded uh, fairly quickly. In a couple of months, in the spring of 1966, it comes out in August 1966. Now, I hear this record, uh, and every time I play it, and I've been playing it since I was a kid, I hear it in a new way. I mean, it never gets old. It never sounds dated. It could have been made in 2006 or 1966. Yeah, it's, it's still inspiring people today. Uh, that's the amazing thing about it. I think as a reference point for musicians. I mean, the fetish that exists around what Jeff Emmerich and George Martin and the Beatles did in the recording studio around the Revolver Sessions is just, uh, that's a cottage industry in itself. How do they get those sounds? How do they do that? Today you could do that in a second on Pro Tools, but it doesn't have the same feel. We promised you a way to listen to Revolver with whole new ears, and our ace producer, Matt Spiegel, (laughs) has put together this montage of the songs on Revolver in order, covered by some of the hundreds of artists who've covered them.
tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Every week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn in popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, playing a song we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, it is your week. Jim, this was a tough one because I wanted to pick a song by this artist, and I was having a very difficult time narrowing it down to just one. To my mind, uh, Missy Elliott, born Melissa Arnett Elliott in 1971 in Portsmouth, Virginia, has been the top singles artist of the last 10 years. And one of the reasons I say that is that she is extending this whole notion of the avant-garde and of turning the recording studio into an instrument that has been a theme of tonight's show, I might uh, mention, uh, with Revolver and the Beatles. She has taken that to the ultimate degree with her partner in crime, Tim Mosley, Timbaland. To my mind, Missy and Timbaland are the great production duo of our time. And it's reflected in their singles. The fact that they've been able to make great pop music and yet still blow minds with the production, to me, really is the uh, embodiment of what the Beatles were all about in, in 1966 with Revolver. Let's make great pop music, but let's push it into this adventurous terrain where we're taking people's heads somewhere new. Great singles down the road. The Rain, Pass That Dutch, Get Your Freak On, Make It Hot. All great songs. I'm going to focus on Work It today. And again, if you just focus on a lyric sheet, you go, oh, that's kind of nonsense. Well, that's kind of the point. She's having a lot of fun with words. She's talking about being this freaky gal seducing a guy. Okay, tired theme, but the way she does it is with an incredible amount of fun and inventiveness. Just the sound of this record is mind-blowing. The elephant's wail and the way that's sort of incorporated into (laughs) into this song. The fact that there seems to be like a, a conversation going on in the background all the time while she's singing. The chorus is done in reverse. We talked about the reverse tape loops mm-hmm. that the Beatles were uh, using. The hook, the chorus in this song is sung backwards. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it, sung backwards. It's one of those little hooks that you cannot get out of your mind. Nonsense turned into a great pop hook. And at the end of the song, she sort of sums it up. She says, remember when hip-hop used to be about fun? It wasn't about gangsters and about looking hot like a prostitute. It was Bling. about getting out on the dance floor and having fun. And that's, I think, where Missy Elliott has sort of restored in hip-hop is that sense of fun, that sense of play, the fact that you can dance to these songs as well as swim around for weeks with them in your head and in between the headphones and get taken to someplace new. So Missy Elliott, one of the great producers along with Timbaland of our time, and here's a great example of her work on the song Work It. Put 
a hurtin' on ya, like I told ya. Give me all your numbers so I can phone ya. Your girl act a snake, then call me over. Not on the bed, lay me on your sofa. Call before you come, I need to shave my cha-cha. You do what you don't, or you will, I won't cha. Go downtown and eat it like a vulture. See my hips, big hips, so cha. See my butts and my lips, don't cha. Lost a few pounds in my waist, go ya. It's the kind of beat to go ba-ta-ta. Ba-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Sex me so good, I say blah, blah, blah. Work it. I need a glass of water. Boy, your boy, it's good to know ya. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, I'm flipping and reverse it. It's your permit if it's wet yet. It's your permit if it's wet yet. That is my Desert Island jukebox, Work It, from Missy Elliott. Nice choice. Thanks, Jim. I cannot get enough of that song. Thank you for indulging me and letting me play it again. Anytime. News, reviews, and more debate about the world of rock and roll. That's what we got coming up next week, Jim. Excellent, as always. Greg, Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn with the fearless leadership of executive producer Tori Southside Malatia, who I heard made an album back in the 60s, but the major labels wouldn't release it. There is an awesome oboe solo by Tori Melody on that record. The fact that it has not come out until now is a tragedy for the human race. I like the way you work that. Ladies, work On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. This is Mickey from Chicago, and I just listened to your soundtrack program this week, and I have got to vote for Absolute Beginners. got Bowie with the main title, you've got Sade, and you've got Style Council, and between the three of those songs, I don't know which is better, but they're all great. Thanks a lot. It was a fun show. I'm an absolute beginner, but I'm absolutely sane. Hi, this is John Collins calling here in Chicago. The soundtrack by the Goblins to the Italian horror film Suspiria is without a doubt one of the single creepiest, most visceral, spot-on, weird, and yet perfect soundtracks that I've ever heard in my life. And uh, keep it up. Bye-bye. Scott Bringhurst is my name, and I was just listening to your Best Soundtracks show, and I'm really enjoying it, and I just thought I would give my plug for my favorite soundtrack, the Repo Man soundtrack. That is just a classic punk rock soundtrack, and uh, it even inspired a job 
that I took for about four years. I worked as a repo man in uh, St. Louis, and, and I would often listen to the soundtrack. When um, they're in the car and floating away, it's just such a fantastic song that just really puts me in the mood. And, and so anyway, uh, that's my number one, I'd have to say. Repo Man soundtrack. Fantastic. Every song just rocks. Yeah. My name's Ray. Um, Kill Bill soundtrack. What Wu-Tang Crew did with that soundtrack and the way that Quentin Tarantino really integrates music into his movies and the, the experience of the movie. I think also the way that Quentin Tarantino actually creates scenes that are completely devoid of any soundtrack. There's no background music whatsoever. And then interposing that with incredibly high energy music. It's really just incredible what QT does, just the people that he put together and the combination of, of music. Thanks. Hi, this is Don from Uptown in Chicago. Where are the soundtracks? Where are the composers? Bernard Herman, Ennio Morricone, Henry Mancini. That to me is film music. you're talking about are just a collection of pop songs put on a uh, soundtrack. Those are just song compilations. Thank you very much. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.